The world has changed. I can feel it in the dice. I feel it in the character sheets. I smell it in the books. Much that once was is lost, for none now game who remember it. Welcome to The One Podcast, a show all about the One Ring and experiencing Middle-earth through gaming, with your hosts, J.M., Richard, Ben, Calvin, and Chris. Well, welcome back to the Green Dragon Inn. Uh, your fellowship has assembled again today, but unfortunately, one of our fellowship members is not with us. Uh, poor Ben is unable to make the recording tonight, so you just have uh, myself and Chris and Calvin and Richard. Good evening. Hello. Namarie. Well, it starts already. Show off. <laughs> <laughs> um, today we're going to start a new series uh, for the show. We are going to dig into one of the major player components of the One Ring, and that is the cultures. Uh, the reason we're doing this is in most traditional role-playing games, uh, you are defined not by who you are, but by what you do. So in Dungeons and Dragons, your class is far more impactful on your character than your race. As the popular saying goes, you are basically itinerant murder hobos, and how you kill people is far more important than where you come from. You know, all of your powers and your identity in the game and your role is defined by this idea of what you do. And that is not a Tolkien or a One Ring focus. Who you are, what your culture is, where you come from, ties you far more to the world than your callings do. So that's why we're we're kind of dedicating this, this first show to kind of doing a cultural overview and why they're so important. And then we're actually going to dig in and look at the bardings. So first of all, any comments on that, guys? Like thoughts on culture versus class i would i would just sort of say in dungeons and dragons you choose a you, you do choose a race and then you choose a, 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 a class this is not just like i'm going to choose dwarf and it's going to give me some extra constitution or some extra this or some extra that when you choose a a, a culture it really determines most of your basic stats much more so than your profession does um, and I think that is, I think is one of the really, uh, really great design elements about this game. Something that's been done so well. You know, a, a Dunedain doesn't start on the same footing as a Hobbit. You know, they they haven't they haven't just tried to go through, and balance all of the the cultures out so much that they're just the same. Mm-hmm. And again, just one little disclaimer: uh, we love D twenty gaming. Uh, we are all running or playing in various versions of Dungeons and Dragons games. It is just the lingua franca for role-playing. Right. Absolutely it, not it, hating on it at all. All right, well, let's... Unless, Christopher Calvin, you have anything to jump in. No, no I, I was just going to say um, the cultures and the callings 
of the One Ring are almost the opposite of race class in your D&D mm -hmm. system. You pick your culture and that's gonna give you the vast majority of your character. And then the calling gives you a couple of minor modifications to your culture similar to picking your race. And mm -hmm. so it's just interesting how they've basically almost just flipped that. Right, so I'm gonna turn it over to Calvin uh, to kind of go over what what actually do you get from picking a culture? Okay, well, the first thing is the culture. This is what sets your base skills. Everybody from a culture has a starting set of skills, a starting set of favored skills, uh, and then you get to pick from a set of weapon skills that are specific to that culture. Mm-hmm. And you end up getting your, uh, your cult, each one has a cultural blessing which are mechanics that really are indicative of who this culture's place in Middle Earth. And when we get into the individual cultures, we'll be able to speak more to that. But also, each of the cultures starts off with not just a history of the culture, but a description. Uh, your, your character's starting wealth actually starts with what, what character or what culture you are from. Your standard of living is defined by whether you're a Barding or Bjorning or a Dunedain. The other thing that is really important to me, the fact that each culture is not just defined by themselves, but are defined by how the other cultures view them, adds to kind of the holistic and living feeling of this world. It's one of the things that I always loved about reading the old World of Darkness books. Uh, you don't just define a vampire clan by what they think of themselves, but because the game was designed to represent this society, you also got to see how every every other clan viewed them. And so I love going through and saying, you know, here's what the dwarves of the Lonely Mountains think about the Bardic. So it, it even gives other cultures kind of t role-playing touchstones. It's really handy stuff for when you're running as a lore master. To, yeah. to know how you know if you have a uh, if you have a, a, an adventuring party which is made up of you know a barding and a dwarf and an elf, well if they go visit Bayorn, Bayorn's going to sort of respond to them and treat them each a little differently, mm -hmm. and that's and I, I think it's one of the beautiful things of the game. It's it's not you're you're not looking at just like a bunch of homogenous you know cities or states or whatever. It's you're you know the the culture the cultural differences really matter and because of the the awesome uh encounters the social encounter system that the one ring has you are you know that that kind of stuff really makes a difference because it affects things like your your tolerance mm -hmm. right it, not just picking the person who has the best skills but the person who is going to be most favorably received also comes into play in the social system your elf may be the social character but if this person hates elves how is that going to reflect comes up in my game a lot i i uh i can only imagine <laughs> um so calvin said your starting skills are defined by your culture, but also your starting attributes. Because uh, each culture provides backgrounds, those kind of, those defined, the, the six different backgrounds define where your starting attributes are even uh, found. Additionally, they also, this is where you're gonna get your first set of traits. 
right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the traits being those things that you can call upon to automatically succeed at roles. Traits and also um, you, I, I have to say I really love the weapon skill packages. Um, I, guess, I guess you could say up front, like, you know, this this is not necessarily designed for somebody who wants to play that halfling who walks around, runs around in full mail and carries a warhammer. Um, this is this is probably not your game, I'm gonna guess. Um, but but just things like um, the skills you start with weapon wise are are cultural weapon skills which you have from growing up with that growing up within that actual culture. Mm -hmm. So um, D and D sort of does this because you know they'll say, well, if you're this race, then you're proficient with these weapons. Elves are proficient with longbows, longswords, etc. Um, but that never that doesn't really account for. Well, but what if you're an elf who grew up in a human city? Will you still get those proficiencies? Yes. Um, and that's that's simply not the case here. That the the way this works is these are the cultural weapons, which someone who grew up in your and and that's why I think calling them cultures instead of races is actually really brilliant, because it's mm -hmm. not just biology that we're talking. It's it's like the whole way of life, mm -hmm. and these are the weapons um, that are you know, the most useful to or most favored by people who live this certain way. And then rounding out, and uh, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when I'm going to, when I buy a game to run a game, I tend to gloss over the character creation section until I've read through the whole thing. Uh, I'm much more focused on the, the rule side of things and the GM advice. Don't do that here, uh, because each culture ends with a magnificent list of male and female names for NPCs as well as for oh, characters. Dude. And with and with Tolkien being as with language being as such a integral part to the world, naming your mail wearing, hammer wielding, hobbit, panzer McTank, uh, kind of detracts from that. <laughs> uh, yeah, those name lists are really helpful um, as well if you are just making up an NPC on the fly and you're like, um, and his name is uh yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I have I have all of those bookmarked. If if I know my players are going to be going to that, you know, going to be spending time with that particular culture this session, I just have the name page bookmarked so that if I need to make an NPC quickly, I can pick a name from the list, write it down, make sure I remember it for consistency's sake. But it's a very right. handy thing. Also, uh, just a general piece of uh, JM's GMing advice. It's rule number six: always say all of your NPC names out loud before you get to the game. Uh, you will be saved so much embarrassment. Just practice them at least three times and run them by a friend who might look at that and say it completely differently. So Calvin, we, we've kind of discussed kind of our starting character stuff, like what the cultures define for the character. What else uh, is kind of culturally specific? Well, uh, the, the other big thing that you gain from your culture or that you get specific to your culture, I guess is a better way to put it, is uh, specific virtues and specific rewards. And so these are the either the, the special skills that you have or special gear that you carry based on your uh, your wisdom attribute and your valor. And so there's a common pool for both of those that every, every culture has access to. And then there's a set of things that is very specific to that culture. And as is par for the course with uh, the One Ring game, they're all very evocative of 
what you would expect to see somebody from that culture either doing or the type of gear they would be using. And mm -hmm. So those are some really nice additional features that you can gain as you progress through the game in addition to you'll get one or the other at starting. Right. Uh, one of the other things that we're not, we'll touch on later uh, in this episode, but that we're actually going to touch on in each of these cultural episodes is what would a game look like if you restricted the uh, group to one culture. Uh, it's kind of a, an interesting idea, running a monoculture game. I mean, in some ways, The Hobbit is... I was about to say, do you mean like 13 Dwarves and The Hobbit? Like That's that? right, yeah. You know, the Hobbit being the Snowflake character who wants to play, you know, the Gaijin in the Lord of the uh, Legend of the Five Rings game, or the Hobbit in the All Dwarf game. Um, and and also, he's that that guy is going to need a magical ring, and he's going to hog all of the. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, you have to because the wizard is getting all of the XP. All right. <laughs> so, uh, any other thoughts in general on cultures before we move into our spotlight culture of the week, which is the Bardings? Well, the one thing that I think uh, is good to reemphasize is that, you know, while a lot of these are race-based, there's several different ones for humans, and you really get a very totally different feel for the character, even though you end up being the same race. Yeah, with, with six backgrounds, at the very least, you could have six different people are six different characters, but even even with the same background, when paired with a calling, you have a completely different outlook on why you're out adventuring. Uh, so, not to downplay callings because they do provide a they provide the focal point for the character. Our first culture that we're going to dig into, and that's going to be you know the focus of the remainder of this show, is specifically the Bardings. Um, who they are, why they drape themselves from horses. Um, I don't. I, mean, I don't think that's the. I think you're that, in the wrong manual again. That's a different type of barding. That's Man, a different thing. This is what I get for looking at my axe book for to prep. Um, yeah, you can't. Like I said, it's the wrong manual. So as you all know from your last read through in the Silmarillion, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> You're Actually, only partially I'm kidding. kidding. <laughs> I'm only partially kidding. Okay, so the so the the the, the um I should I, I'm going to give just a very 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 brief background of the Northmen because basically all the human cultures that we will be looking at in this podcast are Northmen cultures um, until we get to the the the, the Rivendell um, book. Um, the Northmen are members of of a a group of humans called the Edain. Um, and during the events of the Silmarillion, three houses of the Edain um, crossed the Blue Mountains into what was then Beleriand, which is now the ocean, um, and um, and basically um, took service under the Alfords in Beleriand and fought in the war against Morgoth. Um, the 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 three houses of Edain who did that were rewarded by being um, given the the land of Numenor, and they become the Dunedain, and that's a whole other thing. The, their kin who did not cross the Blue Mountains and so never warred with Morgoth um, became the, the cultures of the Northmen. Um, and and Northmen is a really, really broad term which can include anybody from really 
uh, Bree to any, you know somebody from Dale. But typically, when Tolkien uses it, especially in some of the appendices and things like that, where you get a lot of their history, it's talking about the Northmen of the Kingdom of Rovanian. So Rovanian is the fancy name for basically all of the land east of Mirkwood. And um, um, and uh, there used to be a very, very powerful Northman kingdom there. Um, it was eventually sort of destroyed, um, but there, there, yeah, uh, and, and the descendants of the kingdom of Rovanian became the Bardings, they became the Woodmen of Mirkwood, they became, of course, the men of Lake Town. Um, it also plays very strongly into the history of the, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy in that the Rohirrim are, of course, Northmen who have actually mm -hmm. migrated down from their upper and Anduin Valley and migrated down to the Gap of Rohan. So that's uh, that's um, um, it's a it's a fairly far-reaching culture. I'd say it's probably the most populous culture in Tolkien's Legendarium, certainly in the Third Age. And so the Bardings um, originally began about 400-ish years before the events of the One Ring, when the dwarves came, uh, some of the dwarves of Durin's line came and settled the Lonely Mountain. And when they did, um, the, the, the town of Dale sort of sprung up just a few miles outside the mountain, basically um, uh, forming a sort of a trading alliance with the dwarves. So the dwarves don't really do things like making clothes or food or anything like that. Um, the Bardings did all of the, or sorry, the, the men of Dale did all of these things. And, uh, and they got a very sort of a lively trade going with, uh, with the, the men of um, with, with, with the dwarves of Erebor. Um, when the dragon came, of course, he destroyed Erebor and a few years later basically laid waste to Dale. He basically came to Dale and ate people until eventually said, people said, you know what, we're moving. Um, many of them moved to the Long Lake, um, which, was called, which at the time was called Asgaroth. Um, eventually founded a city on the lake, which was then called Esgaroth. And, uh, and of course, that's the, the culture of the lake men, which we've already talked a, a little bit about uh, in a previous episode of this podcast. So when Bard the Dragon Slayer, um, who was a man of Lake Town, kills, uh, and he's a descendant of King Girion, who's the last king of Dale, when he kills Smaug at the end of The Hobbit, he eventually goes back, and with the help of the dwarves of Erebor, he rebuilds the city of Dale and is crowned, you know, the first king of the restored kingdom of Dale. So Dale is this very powerful city-state in the north. Um, it's probably probably the wealthiest uh, uh, kingdom of men in the north of Middle-earth, certainly in Rubanian, um, by the time of the, the, the events of the One Ring. And, uh, of course, the, the, the sort of implied setting of the One Ring, though I'm sure you could said it before this or a little bit after this, is, is, is about five years after the slaying of Dagon. So Dale is still um, being rebuilt, but it's, it's coming very close to completion. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's beginning to prosper. Trade is beginning again. Dale is not this, this huge far-reaching kingdom, um, but it is a very powerful and a very wealthy city-state. Uh, so Christopher, we kind of established where the Bardings are and, and where they came from in Tolkien's Legendarium, why don't you give us a place in the game for us, kind of what mechanically makes a barding? Like what uh, what Richard just said, uh, Dale is is growing, probably of the cultures of men, uh, the most powerful, uh, the cultures of men in, in, in the One Ring game. It's probably the most powerful. It sits right there at a nice crossroads between uh, the Woodland Realm and uh, Lake Town, Erebor, 
so you know becoming this you know mercantile hub i would say um and one thing like when we talked about cultures um you you could say that probably most of the people that are living there are from the long lake even the long lake or from you know even the lake town has been rebuilt and all that culturally it probably is drawn a lot of people from there are prosperous folks that's actually their standard of living up there only one of two prosperous folks in the game correct just in the in the base game it's them and the doors of erebor are prosperous right okay right right to me they seem to be like if we're talking D D terms kind of your baseline human almost okay you know they they don't have any unusual callings they have some suggested callings but Really, they could be anything. Spitting off of that just a little bit, um, I would say if you wanted to play um, um, the kind of character who, you know, wears wears armor and, you know, carries a big sword and carries a great big shield and, like, you know, just like a really... Um, I think I think uh, even in the book, like, the, 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 the picture that they have of a barding is a very uh, formidable-looking guy, like, in a full-suited right. chain mail and a great big shield and a great big sword, and, like, uh, bardings lend themselves to that much better than, than the other human culture options. I, I, I would agree with that, yeah. Just you know, they've got, got access to all that, that dwarven metalworking. And... Exactly. Well, very cool. Um, when we talked about Lake Lakemen, we discussed how their trait resilience was very... Hold on, let me make sure I, I had that pulled up. Oh, tenacious. We talked about how their trait tenacious was very indicative of their mindset in the book. Get kicked out of Dale, build a town on, on the lake. That one gets burnt down by a dragon, build another one, build it bigger. Um, <laughs> the Barding's cultural trait is stout heart. Stout hearted on page 39. So let's discuss that a little bit and I mean, is that as culturally derived as Tenacious was for the Men of the Long Lake? So what does Stouthearted do? Um, mechanically, uh, when, yeah. you, a, when you test using Valor, uh, you roll feet die twice, keeping the best result. All right, so they're less likely to flee and break, and this kind of represents what? From a perspective of the Legendarium, um, the... The men of Dale and the the men of Lake Town are really the same culture, but what you have with um, the people who follow Bard to Dale is that you have to guess that you know these are the kind of people who are likely to follow a young upstart who says I'm going to go refound the ancient kingdom and be king again. He's going to be he's going to be young, um, probably impetuous, probably actually you know the sort of people who would under normal circumstances, form an adventuring party and go looking for goblins in the mountains. Um, and they're, they're going off to, um, they're going off to Dale with Bard to refound the town. And so they do have some of that resilience of the lake town, but it's not just, uh, it's not just, it's not just, they're not just passive, right? They're, it's not just, well, this bad thing happened and I'm just going to move over here and keep doing it again. It's no, we're, we're going back. We're taking it back. And, and, if anything, I think the stout-heartedness probably comes out of that. Very cool. Now, Calvin, you mentioned uh, how each culture brings its own unique trait set to characters. What are the traits for bardings, and kind of what are your thoughts on what they have access to? Okay, so 
just for all bardings, you get access to boat, boating, old lore, smithcraft, swimming, trading, and woodwright. And so, you know, as we've talked about, you know, these are you've got a lot of water related stuff there and then you've got a lot of crafting related stuff plus trading all very very evocative of someone who lives at this crossroads between a massive lake a dwarven kingdom <laughs> under the ground and uh the path through murkwood right i mean this is really encapsulates everything that someone who is from dale would really have access to um and then you know based on your you know the background that you choose you're going to get you know more specific things focusing in one area or another and that old lore trait kind of ties back into what richard was saying in the fact that these are not people who just move on from whatever disaster wiped them out no these are people who survive and remember and are willing to step back in i mean that's kind of the vibe that i get with this culture having stout heart and paired with old lore right right yep i think that's that's very uh very much the case the other thing to remember um just from a uh breaking the fourth wall sort of a perspective is that the when um when the barding culture was first cast as far as i know the Lake Town culture hadn't been made yet. And so, you know, bef before that supplement came out, if you were running the Barding culture, if you were running Lake Town, you'd probably end up stocking with Bardings, which, right, would, be a completely, which would be a completely reasonable thing to do. Right, and yeah. So that's, that's just the other thing to, you know, they've done some things to make them from Lake Town and the Bardings different, and that is actually fun for some in-game reasons, which maybe I'll talk about, but... Um, <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, it, that sort of happened because they were making us a, a second, you know, an extra race or extra culture later. So, right. Well, as we kind of talked about in our overview, the other thing that really your culture affects is your virtue and blessings. And we're not going to go through all of them, but, uh, Chris, Richard, kind of what were your, what were your takeaways? Were there any themes that you saw? Uh, what were your kind of your favorite virtues and blessings? And again, for because this is our first time really talking about these in the show, a virtue is a special ability that you you possess due to your culture, whereas a reward is a physical reward, usually some sort of weapon or armor, but there are obviously exceptions to that. The rewards. They were, they were better than like your standard equipment, but there wasn't anything really that jumped out at me to go, oh, I want to play a barding so I can get this reward. Okay. They're, they're better, but there was nothing really super special that I that, that I noticed. Uh, the virtues, however, there were two of them that I really liked: woeful foresight and birthright. So woeful foresight, basically. Um, your character has uh, the gift or curse of foresight, but it's woke, which means uh, it's not, it's a negative. What, what you see is, is a, a negative. And once per adventuring phase, you can invoke this, and the lore master has to tell you some kind of information that is, is, is negative to the adventure. 
Um, and I just see the, the lore master having a lot of fun, specifically JM a lot of fun. With it. <laughs> oh man, can I? Oh man, I have a story. Yes. Okay. So we have a barding. We have a barding in my group, and he has woeful foresight, and which is which is my favorite of the barding cultural virtues. So he inevitably will invoke it like at one point in each adventuring phase when it seems like things are getting really awful. He'll invoke it. Um, and I always give him something, um, and so far it's always been something that ends up happening, but what is really fun is that sometimes I will give it to him, and then the players are the one who, ones who actually make the thing happen. And it's, you know, it's actually, um, we had a character who, uh, you know, the, the, the dwarf in the party, uh, the, the barding had a, had, a, had a vision of him walking into like this dark courtyard and getting shot with an arrow. Two sessions later, sure enough, he's walking like, and he has the option to just walk out into a dark courtyard and he doesn't even like, doesn't even blink, doesn't even stop, just walks right out, gets shot with the arrow. And it was um, for, 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 well, anyway, it's, for for several in story reasons, it was it was really incredibly hilarious the way it happened and uh, and yeah. yeah. So willful foresight is is definitely a pretty cool virtue and I think it I don't know it I it does not have the effect of the players trying to thwart all of your plans in my opinion. It has the effect of the players being even more scared of you. And as a lore master, I think that's ideal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's willful foresight. Why did birthright stand out to you? Birthright, um, so basically what it does is uh, if if you if your character should die, if you, or if you should receive a wound that would normally kill you, you can have the option of choosing one of two things. Either one, you die, and your descendant um, inherits uh, the birthright virtue uh, as an additional cultural blessing, um, which, you know, we talk about... Um, how your campaign could go for many years in in game, and mm -hmm. how, you know your 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 initial character could could actually retire uh, from the adventuring life, and you could have a new character. And this maybe not is, is, is maybe isn't your plan. Uh, maybe you know it speed up uh, your your next character getting out there, but it's something that could could uh, um, you know, help them out. You know, or at least story-wise, you know, you have a, a descendant for uh, your 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 noble house. That's the idea. You know, your birth, right? You're part of, of an illustrious household. Um, but what I really like is the second option, uh, which is um, that you you you're somehow miraculously saved. You don't actually die. But the problem is that your standing is zero because everyone thinks you're dead. And I just see this as almost mechanically uh, forcing character development. Because you could be, you know, like I said, you're, you're part of an illustrious household. Your character could be a haughty, arrogant noble. And suddenly everyone thinks you're dead, so all that swagger you have means nothing. Yeah. Or, you know, if I, and I also just, again, see a lot of fun with the, the that the lore master could have because you know you're you're part of this household everyone thinks you're dead so your heir apparent takes over and maybe he likes being in charge and you try to 
claim your seat and uh, nope, that's an imposter. Execute him, throw him in the dungeon. <laughs> or maybe that heir Excellent, Christopher. I was going to say, that's nasty. <laughs> maybe that heir apparent is in league with some evil forces. And now, suddenly, your campaign, your character, your, your fellowship has to work to reclaim your noble house before they use that house's influence to maybe destroy Dale or take over yeah. it, it was very much, you know, it, it, yeah, just, just good plot hooks. You can just really take that anywhere in your story. And that's why I really like it. Very cool. Uh, Richard, it sounded like you concurred with Woeful Foresight. Was there another one, uh, either blessing or reward, that really stood out? Uh, Reward-wise, um, I would ha I will have to say that I actually think all of the rewards are pretty cool. Um, these things are they actually sound pretty handy. Like once you've once you play around with them and you're in a few combats, and you're like, oh gee, man, that would really come in handy. Specifically, there's a spear of King Bladderthin. The dwarves of the mountain forge these spears for a king who lived before the dragon came. Their thrice forged heads never lose their keenness and their shafts are inlaid with gold. When you make a ranged attack using a spear, and by the way, like throwing throwing spears in Taurus, like it's a really cool thing and nobody does it, and that makes me sad. But anyway, when you make a ranged attack using a spear in flat earth and you roll the feet die twice and choose the best result, I'm just saying that could come in pretty darn All right, well, let's wrap this up with kind of a discussion on how to use bardings in the game. Uh, so for Chris and Calvin from the player side of things, what are your thoughts on bardings? Why play a barding in the One Ring? Well, I'm going to go back to something that Christopher said earlier, where this is almost your generic human from D&D. This is, you know, this isn't a woodman. This isn't, you know, this is, this is a human. You want to play a human. This is probably the first culture that you look at due to its breadth, um, as well as, you know, it's got some very evocative things about it, right? I mean, uh, Bard and, you know, the Dragon Slayer, and, you know, yeah. there, there's just certainly some things that are just, to me, would draw me to it in those areas. Um, well, why would I play a Barding? Um, well, you know, you, JM, you know me. Calvin, you know me. You'd play a dwarf. Right. Sorry. It's, because, a, you're, it's because your dwarf character died. Yeah, it's because your dwarf character died. Now, if he died, <laughs> if I died all of the dwarves were dead, why would you play a party? <laughs> um, uh, well, it kind of goes back to, to what Richard was saying earlier. I can play a guy with, you know, at the very least has access to resources so I can be um, somebody like the the picture for the parting, who has the you know that that awesome looking shield that looks very much like a Roman scutum, um, mail, big sword, you know, as opposed to the woodman or the Bjornings. Um, I can play that you know not not them, that they can't be heroic, but Jam, you know me, I like to play those those heroic kind of characters. Oh yeah, parting, I I can I can definitely see that. You know, if I if I weren't playing a dwarf or, or a dunadine, then then I would definitely uh, check out uh, the, the party. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so from the GM side of the table, 
uh, we'll kind of kind of talk about two different things well three different things uh, the first of which is how do you call out a specific culture in the game first of all as a GM look at how all the other call look at the the sections on how the other cultures think of the bardings this provides you with great NPC cues and actually some plots if the if you're looking for somebody who might have a reason to view a culture in a negative light that can provide you with an adventure hook um, the other way I mean obviously if you're if you're part of if you're part of your adventure takes place in Dale the bardings are obviously going to be very highlighted but there are ways to establish cultural connections outside of that if you find that your barding character need, you know, you want to provide a hook for your barding character in an adventure, throw in another barding. There's just something about, it's not just, oh, I'm another man. No, we're, we're men of Dale. We have this connection. Force the NPC to create this connection with the, the character. Aren't we all traitors? Aren't we all, you know, we traveled from the lake together. There, there's this sense of cultural unity that you don't necessarily get in generic human in other games yeah i think that's i think that's really solid um what i would say is that bardings are a people they're in a in a crisis point in their cultural history and and i mean that in a good way and that is they're they're looking at expansion that they haven't seen in 400 years mm -hmm. and what that can really mean for for you as the lore master is there's going to be, you know, anytime you have any kind of a people group who starts, you know, trying out their reach and kind of looking for a little more elbow room, they're going to come into friction with the people around them. And and specifically, you got the elves to the west. Um, you got you've got the men of Lake Town, which I mean, think about the Lake Town situation. Lake Town's been doing pretty well for itself all of these years, and now all of a sudden, you know, Bard goes off and he kicks Dale back up and it gets running again and uh, we know from uh, some of Tolkien's other writings that the 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 um, uh, the by the time of the War of the Ring that the Bardings basically influenced the Reach um, stretched all the way about 250 miles to the south I guess and so and that that's an area which you know definitely encompasses Lake Town and so the question you can kind of ask is you know if if Bar if the Bardings are, are extending their their hegemony 250 miles to the south, what position does that put Lake Town in? And I think there's actually some really interesting opportunities uh, there. Well, and that kind of brings us to the next thing we were going to cover is what would an all-Barding game look like? And just to start off, I mean, Richard has some uh, some great ideas that are tied to the lore, but I'm going to just view it as from a you know a game master side. As Calvin said, you have people who are good at watercraft, who are traders, who have lost a kingdom, who kind of fit the generic man motif that we find in gaming. There is just a ton right there to build a number of adventures, if not a whole campaign off of. Uh, trades guards delvers of the ancient cities that used to belong to their kingdom um, anything that you could find in a typical fantasy setting you could with some hacking and filing reimagine in middle earth 
with the Bardings as your primary culture because they do fit that every man, maybe generic, yeah, maybe more every man as opposed to, you know, generic man um, culture. Uh, they are, as Richard said, they're expanding. They're looking for new things. They have old lore, so they're looking back. There are just a number of ways to just tie that together. Agents of King Bard. Agents of King Bard. Okay, okay. you say that. You say that. Look, I'm, I'm going to give you two pitches for, for Barding-only games. Pitch number one is that, yes, the Bardings are expanding. They have a ton of ruined cities. Like, there are a ton of ruined cities that would have been associated with either the Kingdom of Rovanian or the, or the old kingdom of Dale. Um, one of them is actually featured in the, in the, the sample um, adventure, which is in the back of the core book, the, mm-hmm. the, the so the Marsh Bell. Um, and um, um, so I think, I think one really interesting hook you could do is, you know, here's, here's the Bardings. They're expanding, they're rebuilding Dale, but they're probably also starting to look around and say, hey, what about some of those old cities? What about some of those old settlements? You know, we were trading with Dorwinian in the in the east. Um, what about what about rebuilding some of those some of those? And and it, that even gives you the opportunity to almost go off of Tolkien's map a little bit bit and and come into contact with some of those eastern cultures, um, mm-hmm. which I think would be really interesting. So the other pitch, um, so so one one could be, you know, uh, a group of bardings that King uh, Bard gets together and says, you know, I want you to go and check out some of these old ruins, check out some of these old cities, find out what's happened to them, find out can we resettle them, and then, you know, you could make a whole little mini campaign, you know, trying to assess these these uh, former cities and settlements and see whether or not that's something your people should resettle, and then play out trying to resettle it and see what happens. I think, you know, I think a creative lore master could have a lot of fun with that. Oh, yeah, yeah there would be a, yeah. a great generational game there. Yes. So the other idea, though, is that in the Lake Town Supplement, we are introduced to uh, the um, uh, King Bard's Black uh, Company, um, the, the, the archers, the King's Archers. They're, they're called the King's Archers, the Black Company. And it's basically 50 men. They are um, all identified by their sable cloaks, um, and they carry uh, enormous bows and black arrows, and they're basically the King's bodyguard and, like, his crack unit. Um, I think this is a really fun idea, and I think a um, doing a campaign where you you play three or four or five new inductees into the Black Company, and you're running a mission. You know, uh, 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 Christopher just said agents of King Bart. Like you're members of the Black Company, and you are running, you know, these kinds of missions and things at Bart's behest. And you've got political intrigue. You've got checking out new cities. You've got um, you know protecting. Uh, you've got protecting uh, trade delegations. Uh, there's this whole uh, thing in the Darkening of Mirkwood book about um, uh, a princess from Dorwinian eventually comes and marries Bard. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they have to rescue her from bandits and all this other stuff. And it's mostly just hinted at in the book as possible adventure for your, for your players. Um, but I think you could do some really interesting and really uh, entertaining things with that. Well, and that my idea spins so, off of that with so, uh, J- oh, go ahead, J- JM. Before you go, my first question is, when do we start? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, um, uh, I think I think JM. In addition to doing an actual play for the game, we should do an actual play for each culture. Ooh, I each. I could I could I could put together. I think we 
we just have to play all the games. That's yes, we will. Uh, we will definitely have to. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do is actually schedule some AP podcasts where you get to see us pl- or hear us playing around the table. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Take our cultural ideas and have those be kind of one-shot APs. All right, I'm in. Yeah. 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 Uh, so my idea spins off of kind of like that, where you were members of Bard's company in Lake Town, and the Tower of the Master has been uh, taken over by an agent of, of Mordor, like a half-orc or something like that, and he's really there to steal Lake Town's gold. And so you're going in there to save them. And the name of this adventure? Die Bard. Uh, and then, if you had uh, birthright, you could run the sequel. Die Barder. Wow. Live free or die, Bard. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> wrapping this up. Okay, so the war, of, the war of the Ring. Um, uh, Gandalf says something about this. There's more about it in the appendices as well. Um, but very important things are actually going on in Rovanian during the events of the War of the Ring, which, as you know, are, are, are focused mostly on the south. Um, the, king of, the, the, the kingdom of Dale is actually besieged by an army of Easterlings. Easterlings from Dorwinian? I don't know. That could be interesting. Uh, but they're, they're actually besieged by an army of, of Easterlings. Um, the city is actually mostly destroyed. And if you can think about, um, they just finished rebuilding this thing two or three generations ago, and then it gets basically almost destroyed by... Um, um, an army of, of Easterlings. Um, it's it's defended successfully by King Brand, who is Bard's son, um, or, or sorry, sorry, Bard's grandson, um, and he is extremely old at the time of the War of the Ring. Uh, uh, by the time the War of the Ring ends, he's extremely old, but still strong enough to, to stand before the Gate of Dale and wield an axe like a badass until he gets killed. And um, it's it's uh, he's he's just. Tremendous, um, uh, but um, um, uh, the other thing, though, is that before all of that happens, there is this whole subplot of Sauron trying to get the alliance or, or the, the fealty, or at least the alliance of the Men of Dale, and actually the dwarves of Erebor. And these are things that uh, uh, Glowing brings up during in the Council of Elrond. Um, so this is so there is actually quite a bit going on um, Sauron wise in the north in the years leading up to the War of the Ring, and that's actually something I've been working to bring into my campaign as well. Is you know uh, the the Eye of Mordor as it's preparing for the war in the south is not neglecting the north, um, especially right. with the growing realm of men in in Dale. And I think I think Dale is probably something Sauron is fairly concerned about. Doesn't he like dispatch the mouth of Sauron there or something? Um, it's a, it's actually one of the Nazgul that comes. Oh, cool. yeah, one of the Nazgul actually comes to 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 uh, Dale and offers them friendship. And the guy, the men of Dale are like, well, we don't know. We haven't really, I mean, heard of Sauron, but he seems like someone we don't want as an, as an enemy. And the dwarves of Erebor are like, mm, I think we should talk about this. Yeah. And um. Because right, doesn't don't don't the dwarves basically stall long enough that Gimli yes. can get to Elrond for advice? Yeah, yeah, Gloin, Gloin and Gimli, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually really, really, you know, there, there, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Dale is really the center of a lot of the the politics of the North during the time of the War of the Ring. So if you wanted to do a War of the Ring game or or a game leading up to it, 
um, I mean, there's a ton of stuff to work with there. Excellent. And you could title it A Good Day to Die Bard. Yes, you could, you could title it that. Yes, you could. Somewhere in a grave in England, <laughs> there's a professor rolling over. Well, gentlemen, any final thoughts? Nothing here. I just want to grab a handful of six-sided dice now and throw a spear at something. <laughs> All right. Well, I think... I think that is a wrap. Uh, enjoy bardings. Jump on our Google Plus thread about this episode. Let us know how you're running bards in the game. Share with us your great bard stories or how you are incorporating Die Hard into your barding characters. You have been listening to The One Podcast. You can contact us with your questions and comments at theonewingpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Google Plus as The One Ring Podcast or on Twitter at The One Podcast. Thank you for listening.